Our study today is entitled Samuel. And we're going to be reading from the book of 1 Samuel, and we're only focusing in on a few chapters, starting at chapter 3. The first two chapters of 1 Samuel we already covered. Remember, we studied about Hannah, his mom, and the journey that she went through, um, and, and her prayers to God, and how God heard her and answered her prayers, and she made a vow to God. She made a vow that if God would bless her with a son, that she would raise up that boy and return him to the Lord to serve the Lord all the days of his life. And God heard her prayer and indeed brought life to her barren womb. And she did everything that she promised. She made a vow to the Lord. She didn't break it. She was faithful as the Lord was faithful to her. Today we're going to be talking about that young boy, Samuel. The first section we have here is called, Here I Am, the Call of God. We remember in that picture there, Samuel, when he came, finally came, he was weaned from his mother. He was raised up at home. And Hannah did a good job of taking care of this boy and delivered a healthy boy to the temple. And we, we understand that he was about the age of five or six years old when he was presented at the temple. And she left him there and would visit him often, well, every now and then, at least once a year. And she'd bring him a little robe, right, a, a linen ephod. And this is the, the garments that the priests would wear. Now, who was taking care of Samuel in the temple? Well, there was a man named Eli. Remember, Eli was the high priest at this time. And we, we heard in chapter 2 that um, Eli had two sons, but they weren't following in the way of Eli. They weren't following in the way of the Lord. They were corrupt. They, they were selfish. They wanted to do things for themselves and please their own fleshly desires. So these two wouldn't do very well. There was a, an, a prophet that came and told, and told Eli that there would be no old man in his home, in his household. He was told that his sons would both die on the same day. But here we have Samuel coming in, and he's being raised up by Eli. Eli was growing old. He had, um, his eyes were already starting to go dim, and he needed help, you know, carrying out all the priestly duties. And Samuel was learning everything from Eli. So it's kind of this adoptive relationship that happened here. Samuel was not Eli's son, but Eli was the father figure for Samuel while he was in the temple, teaching him the way of the Lord. It says here that in chapter 2, verse 26, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. You know, the funny thing is, this is the same thing that was said about Jesus, right? Remember when Jesus was found in the temple? He was about 12 years old. His parents lost him. And um, he was about 12 years old, and he told them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? Right? And... Right. <laughs> Didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? And then it said that he went home with his parents, and he was obedient to them. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, when we hear this sort of language used throughout the Bible, whenever we study through the Bible, you better believe that you can make those connections throughout Scripture. What is the story of Samuel pointing us toward? There's so many stories in the Bible, but none of them are there by accident. Okay? It's all pointing somewhere. It's all revealing something about God's plan. It's all revealing something about who Jesus is. So as we go through the study today and we learn about Samuel, we're not just studying some Bible character. Okay? We're studying the story of Samuel so we could better understand what is he pointing to, what does it reveal about Jesus. So chapter 3 begins... Okay, chapter 3 begins when Samuel was about 12 years old. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how old he is. 
okay? But through other works like the book of Josephus, it tells us that he was about 12, at the end of his 12th year. Now, in the Jewish culture, this is very important. They would have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, right? And they enter into this um, responsibility for their life. They've been trained up as a child, and now they're crossing over to this adulthood. It's this coming of age. And it's interesting that Jesus was also 12 years old when he was at the temple. And he was talking with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he said, didn't you know I needed to be in my father's household? Didn't you know I needed to be in his temple? And he was speaking things of scripture, the truth. And they were reasoning together in that place. And the teachers there were amazed at the truth that was coming off Jesus' lips. So Samuel was the same age that Jesus was when his story finally picks up here. Okay, About 12 years old. We're told in chapter 3, verse 2, that the word from God, the word from the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. Remember, this was still at the time of the judges. We've been studying the judges for over a month now, okay? And remember, the time of the judges, the voice of God was so quiet. There weren't many prophets that rose up during the time of the judges. All they had was a scripture that they were passed down, they didn't have anybody really guiding them, hearing directly from God. So God's voice was very quiet. It was his word was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. It's interesting to note that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim, and he could not see well. You know, when we talk about, Lord, give me eyes to see, Lord, give me ears to hear. Lord, give me a heart that's ready to receive and know you. You know, when we, when we pray these prayers, what are we setting our eyes on? Not our physical eyes only, but the eyes of our heart. What are our, the eyes of our heart set on? The eyes are the window to the soul, it's been said. And if the eyes are cloudy, the whole soul and the whole body is cloudy. So it's interesting to note here the detail when the Bible says that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. It talks more than just his ability to see. It talks about his spiritual eyes as well and the condition of his heart at this point. It tells us that Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. You see here a picture of Samuel working in the temple, doing the priestly duties. And remember, in the temple, there were different areas. There was a, the outer court, and then there was a holy place, and then the most holy place where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was kept. And it's said that the Spirit of God or the presence of God was there in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, So to be working in this temple in the house of God, so close to his presence... Samuel spent all his days there as a young boy in the holy place, just before the presence of God. But it tells us that Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. When the Lord called Samuel, he heard a voice, Samuel, Samuel, right away. Samuel gets up, here I am. Now, he thought Eli was calling him, right? Remember, he was helping Eli, the priest, in everything. And he was such an obedient kid that as soon as he hears his name, here I am. Now, I know in my house, when I call my kids' names, I call it once, I call it twice. Still not listening. After the seventh time, what? You know, I call him and they answer back, What? Come here, you know? You know and, that, and that's the interesting thing. I think as we get older and older, we don't want to be bothered, you know? We don't want to have to respond to anything. If it disrupts our comfort, we don't want to get up. We want to know what's going on before I have to be interrupted, right? You guys laugh because you do the same thing. Your partner's calling you, babe! Babe, whoa, 
what? <laughs> what do you want? Come here. What for? Just come. It's back and forth, right? <laughs> and it bothers you, you know? It bothers you when you don't get that response. But here we see how Samuel was such an obedient boy. He was ready to serve even in the middle of the night. It said that this was nighttime. The, can, the lamp was already burning in the temple, and um, Eli had gone to bed, and he hears a voice, Samuel, Samuel, here I am. And he gets up and he rushes over to Eli. Here I am, Eli. How can I help you? Eli says, I didn't call you. Just go back to bed. So Samuel goes back to bed. Well, he goes back to lying in the temple before the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, like, what kind of bedroom is that? Imagine lying down in the presence of God. That's like the best bedroom ever. And he lies down, and he hears a voice again. Samuel, Samuel, here I am. <laughs> he just springs up out of bed. Here I am, and he rushes back to Eli. Yes, Eli, you called me? And Eli's like, I didn't, what, what's going on with Samuel? I didn't call him. And then um, Eli was able to finally discern, Samuel must be hearing the voice of God. But remember, we just read that in those times, the word of God, the voice of God, was very rare. There weren't many times people heard the voice of God. There weren't many prophets at this time getting a message from God. But Eli was able to discern he's hearing from the Lord. So he instructed Samuel, listen, lie down, go back to bed. If you hear your voice called again, just say, yes, Lord, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. So then he goes back to bed. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. When this happened, God gave Samuel some very important information. He gave him a vision of what was going to happen with the house of Eli, what would happen with Eli and what would happen with his sons. And it's very, there's a lot of detail. I want you to go home and read that on your own, right? Don't just come here and listen to the study and then forget it. Go back home and study this for yourself. And maybe God will reveal something there to you too. But the fact that Samuel is receiving this message from God and he hears it. The next day, Eli gets up and he's like, okay, hey Samuel, how's it going? And Samuel's like, it's okay, Eli. Remember, he just got bad news. And uh, Eli tells him, listen, why don't you tell me whatever God told you? If you don't tell me, then let God deal with you very severely. You know, you try to scare the young child like that, right? And Samuel was a little afraid to tell him, but he was an obedient boy. So what did he do? He tells him what the Lord had said, that Eli's house would fall, that his sons would die. And Eli said, the Lord will do whatever he will. He'll do however he sees fit. Okay. So we get this idea. Remember, Eli's the one that raised Samuel. He's such an obedient boy, right? Eli, at some level, must understand how to be obedient before the Lord. You don't fight with God. If God says no in your life, are you going to fight with him? You pray and you ask God, Father, your will be done, not mine. And then God does his will in your life, but you're not happy with it. What do you do? But God, I asked and you said you were going to give me what I want and this is what I want. And God says, no, you prayed for my will to be done and my will is being done. How do we respond? I mean, I, I bet we're very different from Samuel. When God's calling you and he says, my child, come close. I want, I want to spend time with you. I want you to know me more. And you're like, okay, I guess God's calling me. But there's other stuff I want to do still, you know? Just like, 
if God were to call, um, Rolly, Rolly, and he says, what? <laughs> what do you want? It's very disrespectful, isn't it? Have you ever felt a, a nudge from God? Like a draw, as though God was trying to pull you out from wherever you were? And it's like he calls you by name. He didn't say, little boy, come here. He called Samuel by his name. And God calls each and every one of us by our name. And whenever you're called, guess what? You're given this freedom to respond whatever way you want to respond. But how do you respond to the call of God in your life? Do you push him to the back? You ever see your Bible lying around at home and you, it's covered in dust and you know you haven't spent any time there? And you're cleaning your house and you see the Bible and you're like, wow, it's really dusty. It, but it catches your attention, but you still ignore it. That might be a way today, right? When your eyes just come across maybe a cross or something that reminds you that God wants to spend time with you today. And you say, you know what, but I think I, I better just go do something else right now. I'll deal with God later. Now, we're not talking about one big call. All that happened here, Samuel was just waking up from bed, and he heard his name called, and he was ready for service. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. How often, when we spend time with God, opening his word, how often do we come before him prepared to listen, prepared to receive? I think sometimes what we do, we open up the Bible because we say, okay, it's quiet time. Let me put my time in with God. And we're so much about the duty that we don't actually hear what God is speaking to us through his word. That ever happened to you? You open the Bible and you feel like you got nothing? You know? I know I, that's how it's been for me sometimes. I open the Bible... And I'm like, Lord, speak to me, something, anything. But I'm looking for what I want God to tell me instead of listening to what God is trying to tell me. Anybody else? You think you're seeking God, but you're seeking for whatever you want to hear. Right? I think God speaks our language, and I think when God calls us to get our attention, it'll come in a way that will get your attention, right? And when he has your attention, how are you going to respond? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Here I am. It means you're showing up, right? When, in this relationship with God, we need to show up. Just like in our human relationships, if we're not showing up in our human relationships, guess what? the relationship suffers. Guess what? There's some sort of resentment. You don't feel that connection. You don't feel like you're journeying together. Right? Um, let's say you had a job. 
Okay? Let's just say you have this job and the expectation is that you're going to show up for your job and do your, your task. Every day when you show up, you need to punch your time card. Okay? And when you come in and you punch that time card, it's saying, here I am. I'm ready for service. Similarly, when we come before God, it's not this passive thing like, okay, I guess I'll read my Bible, see what's up. No, it's a very active thing. So when you open your Bible next time and you want to spend time with God, clear out all the other noise that's going to distract you from your time with God. Okay? When you show up and you pick up that Bible, you say, here I am. You're being intentional. You're showing up. Here I am, God. I know you're here with me. Speak to me now because I'm giving you my undivided attention. I want to know your heart. I want to hear your voice. I want to see your face. I want to love what you love. I want to hate what you hate. Teach me, Lord, to love your ways. Teach me to love your word. Teach me, Lord, to allow you to come into my heart and start changing things. Don't allow me to stay stubborn anymore, God. Here I am. Your servant is listening. When you show up with God, yes, God is our friend, but guess what? He's also our Lord. He's also our master. He's our king. He's our father. Okay, he's the, the, the main authority in our life. So when you show up, you say, here I am in complete submission and surrender to you, O God. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Let's look at our sidebar for a few thoughts here. How do we hear God speak today? I mean, like, you might not hear God audibly call your name, okay? But how does God speak to us today? You know, the Bible is so accessible everywhere. You know, and people talk about, well, the Bible's been translated so many times. And you know what? The truth of God, God's truth always prevails. And no matter what man might do to try and muck up God's word, guess what? God's word is clear when it comes. And God's spirit is not bound by man's error. Yes? God's spirit is not bound by, God, by man's error. So when the spirit of God reveals his truth to you, and God is speaking to you through his word, you get to know what God is all about. You get to know what he loves and what he hates. You get to know what he's calling you to do. You get to know how he purposed your life. But how do you respond to God's word? Sometimes you open up his word, and we don't like what it says. You know, it says, uh, love your enemies. No! I'm having too much fun hating my enemies, you know? God says, vengeance is mine. And you're like, no, I want revenge now, you know? And, and you're contesting God's word, but you open up the word, and how do you respond to God's word? God says, love your neighbor as yourself. God says, forgive one another. Oh, here's a, here's a good one. God says, confess your sins to one another. Ooh. I don't need to confess. You know, you always hear Christians say, I don't need to confess to any human being. I'm just going to go to God. But God said, confess to one another and pray for each other. Okay. How do you respond to God's word? So sometimes we read a passage here, and you're like, okay, that's what it says, but I'm not going to live that way. There's no here I am, speak, Lord. It, it's just like, okay, God, what do you have to say? Well, I don't agree with that, so I'm doing my own thing. How do you respond to God's word? Are you able to discern what voices are of God? This is an important one. Sometimes people feel after they pray to God, and then an opportunity comes along that's aligned with what their desires are. So they step into that opportunity, and they praise God for that opportunity because it's what they wanted. But what if you pray, and you're praying for an opportunity, and the opportunity never comes? You keep praying and praying for what? For the opportunity to come, or for God to lead you where he wants you to go? 
You see? How do we discern the voices that are coming at us? We could say, this is from God because it's good and I like it, so thanks, God. Sometimes we pray and we ask God, God, guide me to the, the next job. Whatever job you feel is best for me, send me there. You know? And then you get a job, but it's not the one you wanted. What do you do? You say, well, you know what? That other guy got the job I really wanted, so I guess it just wasn't meant to be. I guess it wasn't God's will. And we just chop it up like that. We make God's will something small, as though God's will is just to work out for us. That's not what God's will is, friends. God's will is his will for his purposes. God's will is to bring about what God wants. That's God's will. Okay? So we don't diminish God's will to work out for us. The way we're able to discern these voices and these messages, friends, is to measure it up against something. We have to measure up those voices against God's truth. Okay? Use God's word as a ruler, as a guideline, a ruler. Isn't that cool? When you line something up and you need to measure up against something, you use a ruler. That ruler sets a standard that you operate by. So you don't change God's design to fit your style. You bring your life before that word of God, and you measure yourself up against it. And you say, whatever things are not lining up here with God's will, let it be cut out of my life. Isn't that cool? I love that here I am. Whenever we come before God's word, it's not what we get out of it. We stand before God's word and we see how we are measuring up. Here I am. I brought my daughter to her 15-month uh, doctor's visit this week. And uh, when we went in, they measure her. All these different measurements, you know. And um, we have to present her with a clean diaper, and she has to be weighed, right? And every time I go into that doctor's office, I know the routine. I know what's expected. Change her diaper, put her on the scale, let them measure her, you know? And then the doctor comes in with his chart, and it tells us this is how big her head is now, this is how much she's grown, this is how much weight she's gained, and there's this standard that they operate by. Now, there have been a couple times where she was underweight, and they said, how is she eating? You know, and they tried to give us some, some tips on how we could better her weight gain because she wasn't gaining enough weight. See, so when we're not measuring up with God's word, there are certain things that we can learn from God's word about how to get us up to, up to that standard. You know, God wants us to have a healthier life. God wants us to grow, okay? The fact that we started this study with Samuel growing in stature and in favor with God and man. God wants us all to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's why this is important. So from this section, when the Lord spoke to Samuel, we learned that Samuel became a prophet for the Lord. He heard from God, and he was able to profess what God had shared, and it came about. God's will was done. Samuel was a great prophet of the Lord. Our second section is the power of God's presence. Now, if you have your Bibles, open it up, because I'm not, I'm not going to read through it all, but this is a really cool section. And Samuel is barely mentioned, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 4 says that Israel was defeated in battle by the Philistines, okay? And the Philistines killed about 4,000 men. The elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take ourselves from Shiloh, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. See, this is interesting. They knew that God both 
fought their battles and allowed their defeat. They didn't blame the Philistines and say, wow, those Philistines are really strong. They, they killed their guys. They knew that it was God that brought their victory and it was God that allowed their defeat. Okay? To be defeated clearly meant that God was not among them. Remember, at this point in time, the presence of God was seated on that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, under the cherubim, right? So they decided, let's go back to Shiloh and get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's take the presence of God with us and bring it into the battlefield. Where was the Ark of the Covenant kept? Where was the Ark of the Covenant kept? In the most holy place. And what does holy mean? Set apart. So where God's presence was, it was in the most holy place. And they thought it would be a good idea. Let's go to that most holy place and take the Ark of the Covenant and bring it here into our messy battlefield. The elders thought this. So what did they do? They went back. They actually brought it into the battlefield. And you could imagine there was a big uproar from, the, from all the nation of Israel. They were all shouting, yes, God is with us. And there was this loud roar, so loud that the Philistines were frightened. The Philistines knew, wait, the living God, the God of Israel, he's with them right now. There's no way we're going to win. And then we're going to be handed over as slaves to the Hebrews. So the Philistines didn't like that. You know what they did? They went out to that battlefield because they didn't want to be taken captive and made slaves. So they fought and Israel was defeated. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Even with the Ark of the Covenant with them. To be defeated clearly meant that God was not among Israel anymore. What happened after that? Guess who was part of this, uh, guess who was present when the Ark of the Covenant went into the battlefield? Do you remember Eli's sons? Hophni and Phinehas? Now we learned in chapter 2 how Hophni and Phinehas, they would take the choice meats from the sacrifice. They would stuffed their bellies, you know? They would sleep with the women that served at the temple. You know, they were doing everything to feed their own fleshly desire. They, they didn't care about what was God's. They didn't keep things holy. So they had no problem bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the people, right? These were the sons of the high priest, Eli, right? Disobedient. Look at them just eating and drinking, enjoying life. Everything's so great. Among those 30,000 soldiers that fell, Hophni and Phinehas, they both died on the same day at that place, just as God had prophesied, just as God had told Samuel. And when the truth comes this way, because Samuel got a word from God, and it's confirmed because it was carried out, Samuel is now known as a prophet amongst the people. It tells us that in Shiloh, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, by the gate, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of the Lord. Now, we're told that Eli didn't run his household well. He knew what his sons were doing, but he didn't really reprimand them. He didn't really discipline them. He allowed them to slide a little bit as long as they help out every now and then. But now imagine, they take the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure Eli was sitting there, and it said that he's freaking out. He's freaking out because he doesn't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. When he heard the news that his sons both died, and that the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, guess what happened? How did he die? He fell backwards in his seat and broke his neck because he was old and heavy. He was 98 years old. 
He was sitting beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Do you ever find yourself with attitudes similar to Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas? You know the truth of God, you know what's expected, but then you're like, you know what, I'll deal with it later. Right now, I could just indulge in this for a little while. I don't have to worry. How many of you have had the attitude similar to the elders? When you get defeated, you're like, well, you know what? I'm a Christian. I believe in God, and I'm going to use God for my purposes. So let me call on God and bring him into my mess, and I'm going to use God as a weapon against all the haters. Sometimes we do this even with other Christians. We look at other Christians as our enemy. And we use God to make us feel better about ourselves. We weaponize God, but is God really amongst us? Is the presence and the power of God really at work? Or have we allowed our heart to grow cold the way that Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas all did? Because of our disrespect for God? Because of our disobedience? Because of our own desires? It tells us about how the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant to the house of Dagon in Ashdod. You guys remember Dagon? He's the fish god. We were brought into his temple before when we studied about Samson. Do you remember Samson? And they brought him before Dagon, and uh, Samson stood up and he crushed that temple. Right when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and all those people were defeated there. But now here's another temple, the house of Dagon, in Ashdod. The Ashdodites awoke the next morning to find Dagon <laughs> fallen face down before the Ark of the Covenant. Interesting, their God, their statue, fallen face down in worship it looks like, before the presence of God. So the people said, oh no, let's get Dagon back up there. Let's fix him. Let's put him back in his place. And the next morning, the Ashdodites, they came back to the temple, and what did they find? Dagon, falling down again before the Ark of the Covenant. This time his neck was cut off, and his hands were severed. And it laid at the threshold of his temple. Interesting. The broken neck of Eli, the broken neck of Dagon, what is it pointing out here? That there shall be no other gods before the living God. That we don't make ourselves any graven images and bow down to them. We worship the one true God. The Philistines knew that their troubles, there were curses and plagues along the different cities. They wanted to get rid of this uh, Ark of the Covenant, right? So they went from city to city trying to pass it off to other people. But as they went along these different places, there were curses. There were boils and stuff coming over people, you know? And they're reminded of the Egyptians. Remember the different plagues that came upon Egypt? And they, they talked about how Pharaoh and the Egyptians hardened their heart against God, the God of Israel. And they're like, we shouldn't do the same thing. We shouldn't harden our hearts this way, you know, because their God is really powerful. He's more powerful than Dagon, you know. So they wanted to appease the God of Israel. And they even put their own offerings of gold inside the Ark of the Covenant. They wanted to give it back to the Give it back to the Israelites. Let them have it. We don't want this in our place. This guy's going to come and kill us. So when they decided to send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel with guilt offering of gold, the Ark was finally returned, and there were 50,070 men that looked inside the Ark of the Covenant. What happens 
when you try to enter into the presence of God and you weren't invited to be there, you die. Remember there was separation at the Garden of Eden? We could not come in the presence of God in our own manner. The high priest was the only one allowed to go to the Ark of the Covenant and minister there before the Ark of the Covenant on behalf of all of Israel, and he was only allowed to go in there once a year after going through all the different ceremonial cleansings and all the rituals and being obedient to everything that God had commanded before you were allowed to enter into his presence. We studied about how the kings, if anybody came before the king uninvited, they could be sentenced to death if the king didn't hold out his scepter. God as our king is mighty and powerful. But on this side of the cross, friends, guess what? When he calls you, he's inviting you into his presence. When God called your name and you chose to believe in him, guess what? You had been invited into his presence and you were able to do what was never possible before. There was no way back to God. Do we take for granted these 50,000, more than 50,000 men died because they chose to peek into the Ark of the Covenant? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? No one is able to stand against God's judgment on their own. So why are we talking about this? What's all this talk about the Ark of the Covenant? What does it have to do with Samuel? We know that Samuel was obedient, unlike Hophni and Phinehas, right? He was serving in the temple, and he was doing everything the way that the Lord commanded. When he heard a word from God, he was very obedient. He said, here I am, I'm listening, your servant is here. And he chose to serve God. I know that our actions cannot save us, right? Our actions cannot save us. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves from God's judgment. All of us will have to stand before God at the judgment day. So if our actions can't save us, why should we be obedient? A declaration of our love? So our obedience would be a response. Our obedience shows our submission to a master. Our obedience shows that we are living in the way of somebody else, our living God not ourselves. Why is it important to be obedient? Some people think, well, you know, it's too hard to obey God. It's too hard. I'm always going to sin, so why should I even bother? Obedience is not about sinning, friends. Obedience is a condition of your heart. Obedience is what rises up because your heart wants to be right with God. When your heart is in the right place with God, you can be obedient. Does that mean you'll never sin? No, you're going to sin. Everybody has sinned. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody is perfect. But if your attitude sucks, guess what? It's going to be a lot harder to be obedient. So when God calls you, Chris, Chris, here I am. (laughs) Every day, every morning you wake up, let's put it this way. Every morning you wake up and you get that first breath of air. God is calling you. God is calling you back to life 
every morning. His mercies are new every morning. If you haven't answered his call on your life yet, you woke up today, you have another opportunity to answer God's call over your life. And you take that first breath of air. Here I am. Your servant is listening. You take that first breath of air, you're breathing in life. God is a giver of life. God is life. And when you breathe in that air, how are you going to use that life that God has given you today? Are you going to use it to disrespect the God that is giving you this life? Are you going to be selfish like Eli and his sons? Are you going to be heavy with greed? Are you just going to live for yourself or are you going to live for God? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Now, with that, it's not a... People take that as a command to be obedient, but it's not. It's simply stating how if you love me, the natural thing that would happen is that you'd live in obedience, right? So if you're wondering, why am I not obedient? Ask yourself first, do you love God? Because if you love God... you'll want to live in his way. That's it. If you love God, you'll learn to love what God loves, and you'll learn to hate what God hates. And obeying him wouldn't be a chore. It would be a privilege and a blessing. Your desire will become whatever God desires as well. Obedient to God's purpose. So we're talking about how Samuel's story rose up in the time of the judges, right? Samuel was the very last judge of Israel. And what is a judge exactly? The judge is the person that takes the nation of Israel when they're all disobedient. They try to get them to turn their lives back to God, right? And they have the message from the Lord. And, and when they do that, they're calling them back to a place of repentance. They're calling them to a place of confession and admission of their guilt. They're calling them to a place to, to be, measure up against God's truth again. And this is what Samuel did. After the high priest's neck was taken off, right? God says, the way that this nation has been running under the judge Eli, this is not good. It's time for a new judge to rise up, a judge that will do what I want him to do for my people. And Samuel was the judge that lived over Israel, the last judge. We see in chapter 7, verse 4, Then Samuel spoke to the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Do you have other little gods that you're still serving today? You might not realize that they are gods. But they're the things that we want to spend all our time with. It might be Netflix, it might be your cell phone, it might be social media, it might be FaceTiming or karaoke. I don't know. You know, like, it, it captures your attention. It, it just, I don't know, you give so much of yourself to it. Maybe it's your partner, you know? You, you want to please your partner more than you want to please God. And your partner wants you to do something that will please them, but you know it's not pleasing to the Lord. What do you do? Eli was caught with that. He saw his sons. And he wanted to have a good relationship with his sons, I guess, so that they would continue to serve. But instead of correcting them, instead of pleasing the Lord, he compromised. There are a lot of newly married couples in our fellowship, 
And I get it, when you're living with somebody, or even people that have been married forever, you know. You, you want your life to be easier, and you think by pleasing your spouse, that that's going to make you happy. Please God first, above all things. Don't disrespect God by making a God out of your spouse. What good is it that you try to save your life by being good to your spouse and you don't live to God? You're not living in obedience to the Lord. What good is it to you? You have a peaceful life here on earth because your spouse can't hurt you, but then that's it. Choose yourself this day whom you will serve. How can we reconcile ourselves to God? Thank God that he provided a way to be reconciled to him. It's only through the life and the obedience of Jesus Christ, obedience to death on the cross. Only that way we are able to be reconciled to God. Smash down your idols. Now, I'm not saying you break up with your spouse. Okay? I'm not saying break up with your spouse. You don't do that. Okay? You don't have to do that. It's just, it seems, we talk about this a lot, how God had created us with a throne on our heart where the Lord of our life can sit. Okay? And I guess when you gave your heart to your spouse, I guess when you gave your heart to your spouse, you allowed your spouse to take a seat there on the throne of your heart. You don't have to break up with your spouse. You just have to shift their seating assignment in your life. Say, excuse me, dear, that seat, that's reserved for God. Okay? You need to get the side. Okay? Just God first and then you. Okay? <laughs> we we got to remember this. Okay? The reason why we have so much of the trouble is because when we give our heart to something else, we are not being obedient. We're not being obedient to that. And it's just like Samuel, it's just like Samuel was calling to the, the people. This is still a call for all of us today. If our eyes have been dimmed, that we can't see clearly, it's time for us to get back to God. It's time for us to dethrone whatever's taking the place of God's seat in our heart, okay? And say, excuse me, that's reserved for God. Step over, okay? I still love you, you're still in my heart, but you're not on the throne of my heart, okay? The same goes for your job. Maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a career goal, and you're chasing after your dream, and your dream consumes you, and that's taking the throne of your heart. Dethrone that first, and allow God's dreams to sit on the throne of your heart. So that you live for his purposes, not your own selfish purposes. Right? So here we see that Samuel served as judge of all Israel all the days of his life. He would go from city to city, preaching the same thing, calling them back to repentance and reminding them, cut down all those idols, those Baals and Asherah. They cut them all down, just like Dagon was cut down at the neck. There should be no other headship in your life because God should be head of our life. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his two sons judges over Israel, but they did not walk in his ways. Sound familiar? Eli's sons didn't walk in the way. Samuel's sons were not walking in the way either. And Israel did not want his sons who were corrupt to rule over them. So what did they do? They demanded, give us a king. Give us a king like all the other nations. They have kings. Give us a king that will rule over us and, and, and then we'll be okay. Samuel, he acted with his priestly duties. He offered sacrifices. He was the, the middleman between all the people and God. Because God was speaking to him. And obediently, every time God spoke to him, Samuel would say, here I am. And when he went out to the people, he'll also present, here I am, because he's also serving for the people. 
And he wanted the people to know, listen, the Lord has heard your cry. The Lord has heard your cry, and he's going to give you what you desire. However, it won't be all that you think it's, it's going to be. Okay? Sometimes we think we know what's best for us. And we cry out to God, and we want God to give us what we want. Sometimes God will allow you the desire of your heart as a test. Once you have that, do you hold on to that thing and forget about God? You were chasing after that one girl, that one guy. You finally get them, you marry them, and, and then you make them Lord of your life. And you forget all about God. Are you going to continue living in obedience to God? Even if you have all the worldly wealth. It's easier to say that you can serve God when you have nothing. You have nothing else to lose. You, know? you have all the time in the world. Samuel was one of the greatest intercessors for Israel. He was instrumental in mediating between God and the people. As a prophet, he continued on to anoint the future kings of Israel, Saul and David. We will be studying about them in the future. And God is the one that told Samuel, that is the one that you will anoint. He didn't go out on his own and say, hey, he'll make a good leader, let's go anoint him. No, he was obedient to God's leading in his life. He anointed the next two kings of Israel, one of whom was King David. See, our prayers don't change God. God's will will always be done. It might happen in ways that we cannot see. We could demand things of God, but listen, if things aren't going the way you feel they're supposed to be going for you, just remember, you keep calling out to God, or you keep answering God's call over your life. God is with you. God hears you. Remember Samuel's name. He was named Samuel because God heard Hannah's prayer. God heard Hannah's prayer. Every time you hear Samuel's name, remember that God hears you. He hears your cry and he answers you all the time. But when he answers, how will you respond? Will you respond like Samuel? Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Here I am, Lord. Have your way in me. Here I am, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Here I am, Lord. Make your ways known to me. Here I am, Lord. I'm just waiting on you. Here I am, Lord. Have your way. Let your will be done, not mine. <coughs> From childhood to his old age, Samuel was obedient to the Lord. So what can we learn from Samuel's life? How can a believer today relate to the special calling that God had for him? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are these spiritual sacrifices? Remember, when Jesus died on the cross, we do not need to slaughter animals anymore. There's no more of that sacrifice. But the spiritual sacrifices are the thanksgiving that rises up in our heart. The acknowledgement of who God is and what God is doing in our life. Giving God all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. These are the spiritual sacrifices. When we sing hymns, when we serve one another and build each other up as a church, as we encourage each other to continue following Jesus no matter the cost, to encourage each other not to shy away from being obedient to God, because it's what God wants, it's what's best for us. You know, if we live in the way of God, you will have that more abundant life, friends. The more abundant life is in the future that you paint, 
The more abundant life is greater than any good life you could ever think of for yourself. That's abundance. We are limited with our imagination of what we can have out of life. But the more abundant life with God is beyond our imagination. Okay? And when you're living with God in that obedience to Him, He will make all things clear to us, friends. We just have to keep showing up every day. Here I am. Here I am. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation. Just like Samuel was chosen to be used for God's special purposes, everybody that God has called has been chosen. Okay? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's my prayer, friends, that we will no longer live in darkness and dimness. It's my prayer that our eyes will no longer be clouded. It's my prayer that God would be very clear as he enters into your heart and reveal things of his light kingdom, that he would make you a child of light and that you would be a light that shines God's light to all the dark world around you. May God be praised forever. May he be made known. May his will be done.